Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. I try to stay very attentive to statements, sayings, proverbs that take important concepts and state them in simple and memorable ways. So this past week, when my younger sister, Mary Ellen Weingartner, texted me a simple saying, I read it and said, that is one of those. This one is a definite keeper in my life. It simply said this, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. I'm not sure the original thinking behind the saying. It could be that the writer of the saying from back in the first century of Judaism said, when apprentices, when pupils of a rabbi sit at the rabbi's feet, they often sit on the ground, on the dirt. They sit on the dust and grime of the floor inside a house. And as they listen to the teaching, that dust and that grime begins to get all over them, all over their clothing. Soon they are stained with the dust. But the dust is evidence that they've been there, they've listened, they've learned, they've been changed. Or it could be that the one who developed that first century statement was thinking about those who followed the rabbi along the dusty trails of ancient Palestine and in the teaching that took place as they walked along the pathway with all of the different followers that would come the dust was kicked up and by the end of the day they were encrusted in the dust but the dust said I've been there I've listened I've learned I've taken in I've followed And I am becoming, as an apprentice, like the rabbi. I'm not totally sure what the thinking was behind it, but I do know this. I have a rabbi named Jesus. And so when I saw that saying, saw that blessing, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, I said, that's a keeper. In fact, that's the reason we're in this series. The title of the series is Understandable. You can understand the Bible. Our purpose is not to give you an education in hermeneutics after which you can take a test and we can give you a score and you can take out a certificate and say, I learned. I'm not against that, you understand. But our purpose here is to say the very best way you can follow and listen and learn and model yourself after is in understanding what this is saying. And in doing that, you will be a growing disciple. That's our purpose. So in this series called Understandable, we've been talking about different realities. We begin by talking about how the Bible came to be what does it mean to say that it is inspired and then we talked about the fact that one of the challenges in understanding this inspired word is that there's a great distance between our world and the world of the Bible so we talked about ways to collapse that distance so that understanding its words becomes more natural 
But then last week, we also admitted the fact that we cannot approach the entire Bible with the same set of guidelines because there are different genres. We don't read Song of Songs in the same way we read Revelation or in the same way we read Leviticus. There are different genres, and there are therefore different guidelines. So today, today our word is context. Context. What is context? Context is the set of circumstances, of beliefs, of events that happen around any written document, any event, any public statement that help us understand better what it is that was said or done or written. That's context. One of my favorite stories about context, Dr. Hart, I have to be honest, I told this five years ago at homecoming over in Drayson. If you remember it, if any of you remember, you need to get out more. But it's one, of my, it's one of my favorite stories about context. So the story is that an elderly farmer, elderly gentleman, walking down a, an abandoned country lane with his mule and his dog, out for a stroll in the afternoon, everything is quiet, when suddenly around the corner comes a pickup at way too fast a speed. Tries to swerve, but doesn't manage to completely swerve. Hits the three, the, the dog, the mule, the man... They go flying into the ditch, but the, 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 the man actually stops to check on them. But regardless of that, a little bit later when the wounds have recovered, the old country gentleman says, I'm going to sue him. He had no business driving at that rate. So they're in court. He's now sitting there in front of the defense attorney who is coming after him. The man says, I want to ask you a question. This is a yes, no question. Did you not say that day that you got hit, I'm perfectly fine? The man said, well, you see, I was at... No, 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 no. It's a yes, no question. Did you not say that day, I am perfectly fine? Well, you see, that afternoon I was at... No, 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 Your Honor, please. Have the witness answer the question. Well, the judge sits up there and says, you know what? This old codger has something he wants to say. Let's, let's let him say it. So the old man says, I was out walking with my mule and my dog. We get hit. We're in the ditch. At least he stopped. Came back and looked at my dog, horribly mangled, no chance of recovery. We're country folk, Your Honor. He went to his truck, got his rifle, and put him out of his misery. Then he walked over to the mule, two broken legs, 90-degree angles, no hope there, put him out of his misery. Then he walked over to me and said, how you doing? I said, I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> I've never been better. <laughs> Context matters. So take, for example, this word. Just a simple English word. The word is pitch. Pitch. Now, there are, by the way, dozens, I don't know, maybe hundreds of words in English and probably in any other language that would have similarities to this. We ask somebody, what does that mean? So Adriana Pereira, our director of music and worship arts, we ask her, what does pitch mean? She conducts our orchestra. She says, well, it has to do with the intonation of the instrument. Or we ask Brenda Moore, our choir director, what does pitch? She says, it has to do with the intonation of the voice. 
Then somebody over here says, oh, no, 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 I'm a Dodgers fan. I'll tell you what pitch is. Do you know the name Clayton Kershaw? That's when that fastball, that slider, that changeup, that's pitch. And then Doug Mays, my colleague here, best camper I know. He said, no, 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 I'll tell you what I would tell you. If we were camping, I'd say, do you pitch your tent right over there? And it has nothing to do with those two things they just said. And then it happens to be that, that somebody I worked with on a roofing crew all the way back in college in the last millennium happens to be here and says, no, 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 no. Pitch has to do with the angle, the slope of the roof. And then somebody else says, I've been watching you on those stairs. In fact, somebody said this just this morning. I'm afraid you're going to pitch forward and land flat on your face. And that means something totally different. So that by the time we're working our way through this, we say, wait a minute, how do we even have conversations when we have words with all kinds of meanings? Well, the answer is simple. We depend on context. Context. So we want to talk about a passage today from Luke's Gospel and we want to talk about four different kinds of contexts. I'm not saying that these are the only kinds of contexts, but I am saying that they are four important contextual realities that are probably worth considering any time that we come to a passage of Scripture. So you know that in this series, if you've been joining us week by week, we have an assignment. And that, that assignment is read the Gospel of Luke. Some of you who are a bit more feisty, you take your vitamins every morning, you're reading the whole gospel every week. That's wonderful. Others of you say, well, I'm not quite that proactive, but I am reading a couple of chapters a week. You'll be done by the end of the series. And some others of us say, well, I haven't started yet. It's not too late. Read the gospel because it has so much to tell us about Jesus, about God. So today we come to a passage that you have read maybe many times. Luke's Gospel, the fourth chapter, verse 1, says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him alone until an opportune time so let's start with some historical context maybe the immediate context the immediate context is that we are in the land we today would refer to as the holy land we're in ancient israel 
It is a time when the Jewish people have become sick to the core of being under the crush of Rome's heavy boot. They want freedom. They're tired of being subjugated. We know from the historical record that pseudo-prophets and pseudo-messiahs are arising. It's a fertile time for such to happen. We also know that some 30 years ago, there was some rustling in a backwater place called Bethlehem about a king, but that kind of died out and has been virtually forgotten. But something just recently has electrified the country. A baptizer named John down at the Jordan. It has so electrified the country that people are coming not from miles, not from dozens of miles, but from 100, 150 miles on foot going to the Jordan, every class of society, and they all come with one basic question. Are you the one? Messianic fervor is at a fever pitch. And then, a baptism in Luke 4.1. That's the immediate context. But what about the larger context? If we were to think not just of what's happening immediately in that place and at that time, but if we were to talk more about the historical background well, listen to the words of the late, and in my opinion, great Fred Craddock, New Testament scholar, homiletician extraordinaire. Here's what Craddock writes. First, he says, to be true to Luke's style, we need to locate Jesus' temptation in relation to its antecedents in Judaism. Moses, 40 days on the mountain without food. Elijah's 40 days in flight to the mountain of God. And, of course, Israel's 40 years of struggle in the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness trials of Israel, especially as recited in Deuteronomy 8, are clearly the immediate background to Luke 4, 1 to 13. And in that passage, Deuteronomy is quoted by Jesus three times. Of course, the general background is the Garden of Eden. So what Craddock is saying is, if we are to look at this scene of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, and we look into the further background, all the way back in the hazy distance looms the story from Eden, this great controversy, this great conflict between light and darkness, truth and error, God and the adversary. That's in the large background. But closer to us are other key events in Jewish history tied together both by numbers, 40, 40, 40, and by people who are to be trusting God but who keep failing and who can't stay faithful. Historical background. Maybe that's enough for now, so we turn to the literary background. This we spent time on last week, talking about genres and some of the key realities about how to think about different genres, but today I want to take you back to something from a couple of weeks ago, and that's when we talked about the Gospels specifically and said, when you're studying the Gospels, one of the things you want to do is to think horizontally. What does that mean? It means you sit down with the four Gospels in front of you, and you take an incident like this one, the temptation, and you say, what do the different Gospels say about it? How do they handle the story? You certainly want to be 
attentive to the ways in which it is the same, but you especially want to pay attention to differences because it will be in those differences that you will see, remember the Gospels, theologies, not chronologies, you will see the writers painting, come out, tracing who this Jesus of Nazareth is in his own unique way. You saw it on the screen in the quote from Ellen White. Don't be, I'll give you my words for her quote, don't be disturbed by that. Each of us will give a different hue to the painting. So we do that with this passage. Lay the four Gospels out in front of us. First thing we notice is John doesn't even tell the story. So we file that away and say, okay, one of these days I'd like to understand a little bit about why John neglected it altogether. But for now I can't do that. So the next thing we notice is Mark tells it quickly. Remember from two or three weeks ago, one of his favorite words, immediately, 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 immediately. You read Mark's gospel, The Temptations of Jesus. This is kind of how it sounds. He went to the wilderness, got tempted, it was bad, we're moving on. That's kind of the sense you get. So now you're down to Matthew and Luke. And there are many similarities between the two. Covers the same ground, the same essential temptations. Baptism is in the background. But then you notice something. You notice that while both begin with stones to bread as the first temptation, the next two are not in the same order. So you do a little digging. Find out that there is some thinking on the part of scholars that it is likely that Matthew's order is preserved from the order of the temptations. And that's built on, on some of the realities. For example, in Matthew's gospel, reflecting what Jesus faced in these temptations, it starts from the lowest, which is the desert floor, and moves to the higher, which is the temple, and then moves to the highest, which is the mountaintop. And then Jesus, in responding and quoting Deuteronomy, does so in descending order. He quotes Deuteronomy 8 and then Deuteronomy 6 and then an earlier verse in Deuteronomy 6. There is a certain poetic reality to what is there. Many believe Matthew probably preserved the original order. So then the question is, Luke, what are you saying? What's happening there? Why is it that you save Jerusalem, the temple, for the last? The answer, quite simply, is that Jerusalem is extremely important in Luke's gospel. Very important. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, when he talks about this temptation, he doesn't even name Jerusalem. He just says the holy city. Luke names it. Because as Jesus moves through Luke's gospel, there is a sense in which the organized religion of the day, the power of the day, from Jerusalem was on a collision course with this Galilean rabbi. And Luke appears to be very interested in how this will unfold. Listen to New Testament scholar Gary, or pardon me, Craig Evans who writes, Jerusalem plays a significant part in Luke's story of Jesus. Only in Luke's gospel does Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem and then take the next 10 chapters or so to get there. 
The importance of Jerusalem for Jesus is hinted at in Luke 13 where he says, Surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. For Luke, Jerusalem is the city of Jesus' destiny, and therefore it is appropriate that the temptation scenes reach their climax there. What will happen in the city where the religion of the day guides and controls? What about this itinerant preacher? Luke is very interested in Jerusalem. Now, there's more we could say here, and we will say more in a moment, but I'm going to move to the cultural background. Now, you know what culture is. Culture is, for the fish, it's the water they swim in. What water? For us, it's the air we breathe. What air? It's just the way we do things. We accept it. We, we greet each other in certain ways. We do certain things when people come over to our homes. We, there are many different cultural realities. We want to understand exactly what in the culture might have affected what happened here. So here's an interesting possibility. There is some evidence that there had grown up by the time of Jesus a, a, a belief, a cultural belief, that when the Messiah came, the Messiah would stand here on the temple and would be hailed as Messiah. In fact, some have wondered, what about that next to last chapter of the Old Testament and the first verse of that chapter, one that we sing in the Messiah each Christmas, the Lord whom you wait for will suddenly appear at his temple. Do you suppose that the tempter is saying something to Jesus along those lines? In other words, he's saying, Jesus... Look at you, emaciated, sunburned, wind-whipped, clothes-stained and torn, scraggly beard. Look at you. You will never be accepted. The path on which God is leading you is sure to be a catastrophic failure. Here you are. Jump. I'll make sure there are angels to let you down easy. You will not dash your foot against a stone. And when you land here, they will hail you as king. Just jump. Don't worry about what God has in mind for you. It won't work. Now, there's a curious thing here, which is, is available to you just in your Strong's Concordance. Another curious difference could be over here, but I'm putting it here, in Matthew and Luke. So when Matthew tells the story and says that Jesus has showed all the kingdoms of the world... He uses the Greek word cosmos. It's one of those Greek words that even if we've never taken a Greek class, we're immediately familiar with it. Not so Luke. Luke uses a different Greek word, oikomene, which is translated the inhabited world, and during that time period was much more commonly translated the Roman world. 
It's a word with distinct political overtones. It's as though Luke is saying, catch this, don't miss it, because core to this temptation is saying, look, you know what your people struggle with. You know that they are under the weight of Rome's subjugation. I'll give you Rome and all of its land. You can be in charge. You can deliver them in whatever way you choose. It's all yours. Jump. Wow. So we keep looking. What is Jesus facing? So now we go to the theological. Now, I would want to argue with you that this is the most important question, regardless of what passage we're reading, what text we're trying to exegete, what book we're trying to understand. Ultimately, our question is, what does this say about God, right? Now, I I realize we have to have other realities in place before we can fully and faithfully get to that, but that is the ultimate question. What picture of God is being painted in this passage? What does it tell us about God? God, theology, what are the theological concepts? You remember, theology comes from two Greek words, theos, God, logos, word, words about God. What do these words tell us about God? So I want to encourage you to once again draw from this, Matthew and Luke, to notice something. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism. We miss this a lot of times because there's a chapter division there. The last verses in chapter 3 are the baptism of Jesus. The first verses in chapter 4 are the desert temptations. But there's a chapter division which would not have been there in the original. So we miss some of the immediacy of those two events. So in Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes up out of the water of baptism. The water of the Jordan is still dripping from his beard when he strides into the Judean wilderness at the promptings of the Spirit. Not so in Luke's gospel. In Luke's gospel, it's still the same order, but Luke has a 15-verse interlude between the baptism and the temptation. And the most common words in that interlude are these words. The son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And it's like, oh my goodness. Nothing to see here, folk. Just keep on moving. Skip down to verse, chapter 4 and verse 1. But we do so at our peril. Because Matthew's genealogy is right at the beginning of the gospel. In fact, it's worth paying attention to how Matthew tells the genealogy of Jesus. He starts with Abraham. Starts with Abraham and then works all the way down until finally we have Joseph and Mary. We could talk more about that if we had the time. But we have Joseph and Mary and we have Jesus. And so Matthew, being written for a Jewish audience, starts with the father of Judaism, the friend of God. This is a Jewish Messiah. Then we come to Luke. And Luke starts up here with Mary. He does name Joseph, but have you noticed what Luke says about Joseph? He says, Mary and Joseph, who was supposed to be the father. 
In other words, wink, wink, he's not the father. You know that, right? In fact, I heard a best, best, best description of this I heard from an elderly black preacher who was describing Jesus in the temple at 12 years old being asked questions by the, the, the religious doctors who were stunned at his wisdom till finally, said the preacher, one of them said, just how old are you, son? And the preacher said, Jesus said, well, I'm 12 years old on my mother's side. <laughs> but on my father's side, I'm as old as time. And I heard that and I said, what am I doing? I'm going to go do some other profession. I wish I could preach like that. Just captured it all in that one statement. So you have over here in Luke's gospel, this is where it starts, but it's going back now, back to the origin of that lineage, of that genealogy. So I want to read, I almost pitched it right there. I want to read to you the last verse of that genealogy. Now remember, we've been going the son of, the son of, the son of. So now we come to the last verse. Luke 3, verse 37, it says, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Wow. Up here in Matthew, we understand this. It's written for a Jewish audience. Starts with Abraham. Luke over here says, wait a second. I'll tell you where this starts. This begins with God. The creator of us all. The father of us all. In other words, could he be saying here about Jesus, this Jesus is for you. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your national identity is. I don't care if you're male or female, slave or free. This Jesus is for you because his genealogy traces all the way back to God himself. Luke is telling us something about God as he sets the stage for the temptation. So what does the temptation say specifically? Once more, with your permission, the words of Fred Craddock. Listen to how Craddock talks about this whole scene. Here the temptation is presented as a conversation as in Genesis 3. We may surmise that Jesus is struggling with what it really means to be about God's business. This first temptation is not only personal but social. Will Jesus' ministry be one of turning stones to bread? The second is political. Will Jesus submit to the ruler of this world in order to achieve good for the people of this world? The third is religious. Will Jesus win Jerusalem by coercing faith, avoiding death by the display of supernatural power? It is important to keep in mind that a real temptation beckons us to do that about which much good can be said. Stones to bread? The hungry hope so. Take political control? The oppressed hope so. Leap from the temple? Those longing for proof of God's power among us hope so. All this is to say that a real temptation is an offer not to fall but to rise. 
The tempter in Eden did not ask, do you wish to be as the devil, but do you wish to be as God? There is nothing here of debauchery. No self-respecting devil would approach a person with offers of personal, domestic, or social ruin. That is in the small print at the bottom of the temptation. So what does this mean? What does it ultimately tell us about God? I suppose that we could say that the seeds are planted here for what will bear fruit in other documents in the New Testament. That this is saying Jesus understands the power of our temptations. That it's saying we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We have a high priest who was tempted in every way as we are. That maybe it's saying in Jesus, God understands us. Maybe that's what it's saying. Or maybe there's something further here. Maybe for those of us who wish to follow Jesus into the wilderness, dry and dead and dusty, maybe it says something else. It says, stay close enough to the rabbi that you're covered with his dust because what is his will become yours because he's the God of every single one of us. When I was a kid, mom and dad would call us in for worship. And they would often say, we're, we're, we're going to sing a song. We knew the words of it well. Maybe some of you with a little gray in your beard or in your hair will remember the words of this song. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. Strength for today is mine always. And all that I need for tomorrow. My Lord knows the way through the wilderness. All you have to do is follow. Would you be willing to sing that with me? So I leave you with a blessing from first century Judaism. May you be covered with the dust, the wilderness dust of your rabbi.
Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.